Hello and welcome to the John 315 podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, frequently misreads texts on air Van Shank, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, the chief yammerer swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you the chief yammerer? Well, I am known to yammer uh, a time or two, and for this first episode, I'm going to do a lot of the talking, so I think it's a fair enough name for right now. What about you, John? Why do they call you frequently misreads texts on air? Well, as the name would imply, it's because I, in fact, frequently misread texts on air, but... Fortunately, I'm also the one who edits this podcast, and so hopefully no one will ever know, except that I just told everybody, so, ah, too bad. Yes, it's only me who has to be subjected to all of the little misplaced words. Oh, and boy, do you give me a hard time for it. Well, Jeremy, this is our first podcast that we're doing here, and as we said in the opening, our goal is to open up the mysteries of the Bible and put verses back into context. But could you talk to us a little bit more about, you know, maybe why we decided to do this podcast and what we're hoping to accomplish? Sure, yeah. So we're calling it the John 315 podcast, um, simply because of how well-known John 316 is. And I think there's a lot of verses in the Bible that... Maybe if you go to seminary and spend years and years and years studying, then you might be able to, to you know, pick, pick apart the contexts of these verses. But I think a lot of times, those of us who are just in the church and the pews every Sunday, maybe never hear a sermon on the context of John 3.16. What's actually going on in that chapter? Uh, and there's a lot of examples of that in the Bible. And of course, this first episode, we're not actually going to do on John 3.16, so We'll be saving that for, for a big special, I guess, in the future. That's right, folks. You'll have to wait. <laughs> yeah, what is, I don't even know what we would say about John 3.15, honestly, yet. It's just a, a good name, I think, for symbolizing what we're trying to do in this podcast. And so John and I, both of us are just lay people in churches, um, and we want to talk about some of these verses that we think are important and dig into them ourselves and speak about maybe why the verses are misinterpreted. Or in some cases, maybe the verses are interpreted fine by the common interpretation of the church, but perhaps they're missing something important that people aren't seeing because they're not reading all the verses around it or looking into the historical detail behind the book. And I think that really hits on, for me, the, the, the most important thing that I'm hoping that we'll accomplish with this podcast, and that is really to just be encouraging the 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 regular person who is uh, you know attending a church participating in the in the Christian community to in, encourage them that the Bible really is accessible and uh, more than that it's the Bible's beautiful and it's rich and it is worth digging into and by digging deep into these scriptures and into these verses uh, it it will just be revealing more and more of God's good character. Cut the chit chat. Let's crack open the word. So the verse that we are going to start this podcast out with is a, a very commonly quoted verse. It's uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, uh, and it reads, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, this is a, a really popular verse, both among Christians and among non-Christians as well. And I, I think that there's a lot to really understanding what Jesus is actually saying here in this verse of, you know, judge not that you not be judged, or that you be not judged. 
um, you know, some of the interpretations that, that we tend to hear from people is, you know, particularly from Christians is something to the effect of, well, you know, we all, we all sin. And so we should be really careful that we're not critical of other people for their sins. Cause you know, Jesus says to judge not, you know, there's that, or a lot of times this verse gets linked up with, uh, uh, the, uh, the story in John of the woman caught in adultery where, you know, Jesus says, you know, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And people tend to kind of jam these two verses together and see like, see, Jesus says, don't judge. He says, you know, you can't cast the first stone. So we, we shouldn't ever call anybody out on anything. You know, and, you know, to kind of hammer on the hammer home the point, Jesus is a pretty non-judgmental guy. You know, he's he's pretty merciful. He's, you know, preaching this message of love. And so, you know, Jesus is Jesus is all about love. And so we really can't be judging other people. And that, that's kind of the way that I, I hear this verse getting used a lot. Well, all right, John, I think you're right that uh, that verse is used a lot and is used in lots of different ways um, to justify ideas that may or may not actually be. Uh, in accordance with the teachings of Jesus. So I think it's time that we put that verse back into context, or so help me. It's time for the meat. I'm going to have you read the next few verses after verse one, if you could, John, uh, verses two through five, and uh, take care not to frequently misread the text on air. (laughs) I will be careful. Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse one, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, let's first take a look at uh, verse 2, if we want to understand verse 1. And it starts with this interesting little word, the word for. For, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. So let's talk real quickly. I know this is going to sound amazing, like we're right away we're digging down deep into one word. Um, But for the word for, when interpreting the Bible, um, it's super important to pay attention to it. Uh, It it usually indicates some form of like uh, argument. So in this case, judge not that you be not judged. And then as the reader, you might be asking, well, why? Why judge not? Um, Why will I be judged if I judge? And then Jesus goes right on to say, for, because with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And so we got to pay attention right away to that word for, and and immediately that should clue us in that verse one cannot stand just by itself. Um, If we really want to understand it, we got to look at what comes next. So with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is saying, why? Because when you judge, that is the the standard to which you yourself will be judged. But then looking into verses three and four, Jesus uses this interesting uh, log metaphor. And now this is also very famous and familiar. I think a lot of people have heard of this, but maybe not everybody knows that this is in the same paragraph, the very same section of teaching of the Bible here in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's this kind of comedic use of this metaphor. So your brother has his sin and it's represented by this little tiny speck of sawdust that's like caught in his eye. Presumably he's kind of irritated by it. Like, you know, his eyes a little red and he's like rubbing at it, trying to get it out. It's probably not killing him or anything, but he's just a little, uh, you know, irritated by it. 
Meanwhile, though, while you're like looking at your brother rubbing his eye with the speck in it, you've got this giant log and it's just protruding out of your eye. It's really disgusting. It's like almost something in a horror movie. And in this scenario, imagine you with that giant log jutting out of your face and you can only see out of one eye. You're so obsessed with the faults of others that you ignore this elephant in the room, or I guess this log in the room, and you turn to your brother and you say, hey, you know, that speck, you should get that looked at. Like, you should go to the eye doctor. Or maybe if you come here, I'll, I'll just help you remove it myself. It's, I don't know. To me, it, it seems like kind of a comedic metaphor. I don't know if it would have been understood as a joke in Jesus' day. But to me, there's all sorts of funny little things associated with the metaphor. And obviously, the intent of, of this metaphor is to point out that you're a fool if you have this log in your eye and you only notice the speck in your brothers. That makes you a fool. All right, so that's verses three and four. However, then let's take a look at verse five. It says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's interesting that Jesus concludes this whole teaching by saying that you do need to take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, there's not always some sort of moral failing associated with taking the speck out of your brother's eye. Um, so it's interesting that this this idea that we should never, Christians should never point out the faults of others in any circumstance uh, seems to be directly contradicted here in verse five with this idea that we need to uh, take the log and then see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the conclusion I'm going to draw just from looking at this immediate context is that Judge not that you be not judged is not an absolute prohibition of any kind of, you know, statement that what someone else did is wrong. But Jesus is concerned instead about this tendency we find in our sinful hearts to want to find the fault in everyone else before we'll find it in ourselves, And that's definitely what seems to be at play here. Yeah, that sounds really reasonable given the immediate context of these verses. Um, but at, at the same time, I... I I think that there, someone might object to this by saying, but, you know, Jesus says, he literally says, judge not that you be not judged. He, like, literally says, don't judge. So I could see someone coming back to you and saying, well, you know, how, how can you get any clearer than Jesus's direct teaching that you shouldn't judge? How, why are you, like, trying to explain away Jesus's teaching with this, you know, fancy context thing that you're talking about? Well, I think that's a good point, John. And I don't actually think I've made my point well enough yet. We're going to have to look at some more details here uh, just to make sure we're on the right track. In particular, let's just talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so, so far we've talked about just the literary, like the exact words that are right around Matthew 7, 1. Um, what is Jesus saying in that paragraph? But let's expand this to a bit and just talk about what the Sermon on the Mount is. What is Jesus's objective in this sermon? Um, and for those who don't know, Matthew 7, 1 does come right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew 5 and ends at the end of chapter 7. So what's going on in the book of Matthew here? The Sermon on the Mount is a bit notorious among the sermons of Jesus, not only because it's completely awesome and full of important teaching, but also because it's kind of tough to interpret. In particular, though, I think I want to highlight two things about the Sermon on the Mount that's going to help us with this one verse. First, we need to note Jesus uses a very deliberate, hyperbolic style throughout this sermon, and that meaning exaggerated speech. He's using exaggerating points as a rhetorical technique. 
For example, the command to cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. We can talk a little more about that in a second. Second, let's look at the historical context of the sermon. Much of the Sermon on the Mount is targeted specifically against what the other teachers in Jesus' day were saying. And that's true of really all of Jesus' ministry, to be honest. But the Sermon on the Mount is especially structured in such a way as to let us know that this is what he's doing. So let's uh, take an example here. Uh, in verses chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, you have heard that it was said, listen to that phrase, you have heard, Jesus says you, his audience, have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Are you actually supposed to tear out your eye or cut off your hand? Well, certainly not, Jeremy. Christians have never really interpreted it this way, because that doesn't make any sense at all. Sure. I mean, we all sin with our eyes and our hands every day. So everybody would be quickly blind and disabled. But even more important than just that, that kind of practical matter of is it even possible, Jesus himself teaches explicitly that sin is a matter of the heart and not a matter of your eye or your hand. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? So Jesus is explicitly saying in this passage, the mouth doesn't defile you, the heart defiles you. So if you sin with your, your mouth, if you say something wrong, you can't just cut off your tongue or your lips and solve the problem. So this is one of those instances where, yeah, as you were saying, John, it, it seems like we're trying to explain away what Jesus is saying by, you know, paying attention to the context or by paying attention to, like, is Jesus maybe making an exaggerated statement just to make a point? Um, it can sound sometimes like we're trying to explain that away, but this is actually <laughs> pretty good evidence that this is Jesus' style in this sermon, because if Jesus literally meant what he meant about cutting your hand off, then he would be contradicting himself. So I'm going to conclude, along with the rest of the church, there's, I don't think there's really anybody who's any serious theologian or Bible scholar who said otherwise, that Jesus is not saying to literally maim yourself when you sin. Yeah, and a point to make here is that, you know, we're not saying that Jesus only ever spoke in hyperbole, that, you know, Jesus is, every time he's speaking, he's just making these exaggerated statements. But it's more that if you look at the entire discourse that Jesus is giving here in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus uses this pattern of speaking in an exaggerated fashion over and over and over again. So when we come to one of his particular teachings here in uh, uh, Matthew 7, we're already primed and expecting that there's going to be some kind of exaggerated statement that Jesus is making to illustrate his point. However, later in the book of Matthew, we might not necessarily expect Jesus to be continuing this pattern of making ex exaggerated statements. So we're not trying to say you should only ever think that Jesus is being over the top, but just that in this particular case, that is clearly what he's doing. Certainly. Yeah. So when we get to the phrase judge not, um, and then especially when it's tempered by the statement that you will be judged with the measure you use, 
I think that invites us to understand the text as not absolutely never in any circumstances ever have an opinion on the moral status of another person's action. But rather, I think it's inviting us to say, don't be the kind of person who just goes around constantly worried about what other people are doing and, and their other stat and their status before God. Um, I think that's more what he's saying, you know, because if you're harsh on others, that's how you're going to be judged. Let's take a look at uh, another one in the Sermon on the Mount, just to reinforce this point. John, could you go ahead and read for us chapter 5, verses 38 through 41? Jesus speaking here. You have heard it said, uh, notice again that same phrase of Jesus saying, you, my audience, have heard other people say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Thank you. Yeah, so you see that pattern again of the you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And that pattern there is is exactly what I was talking about when I was talking about Jesus is trying to teach things specifically against the religious teachers of his day, trying to communicate certain corrections to false ideas they have. And notice that some of these things that Jesus was quoting are from the Bible. <laughs> Again, the last one we looked at, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that's literally in the Bible. It's not that Jesus is saying that that's a wrong statement. He's just trying to intensify it, saying it goes beyond not committing adultery. It also extends to not lusting. So similarly in this passage, uh, we have an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that is in the Bible. But what was misunderstood by the teachers of Jesus' day is that that passage wasn't intended to be about personal retribution, about fighting back against people who did you wrong. In the context, it was about judicial punishment. So in other words, what the proper punishment by the authorities of Israel would have been if someone murders somebody, for example, their life would be forfeit. Um, and in this case, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So whatever harm was done by the offender, that is the justice that's to be meted back out onto them. But unfortunately, in Jesus' day, this was being misused just to say like, oh, you punched me last week, so now I'm going to punch you back, which is, you know, you can't even have a society that way if nobody is willing to overlook other people's faults um, and just not, you know, seek exact vengeance. So that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think Jesus is saying, do not resist the one who is evil, like, at all. And I mean, I, in order to just reinforce why I think that, I would just point out that in the Old Testament, God commands his own people to go to war against other groups of people. Uh, so, yeah, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus certainly believed in the Old Testament, uh, you know, and so he doesn't fundamentally dispute whether it was right for God to have commanded the people of Israel to do that. So obviously there's at least some sense in which resisting an evil person is okay with Jesus. I don't think he's teaching total pacifism, but I do think he is saying that you should not enact personal vengeance on anybody. So this is another, another instance in which we can't just take that phrase, do not resist the one who is evil, strip it out of its context, uh, the verses around it, and then the sermon of, on the Mount itself, and then just absolutize it as a complete statement about everything Christians need to understand when it comes to self-defense and violence and war and capital punishment and all these topics. 
Uh, it's far more complicated than that. However, we choose to go down on those issues because Christians do disagree. Um, and it's not my point here to, to take a stance on it. Uh, but simply to point out that that passage is not a very good argument for total pacifism. Well, Jeremy, that was quite the whirlwind of facts and logic about the Sermon on the Mount. But, you know, how do we tie this back to Matthew 7-1? Sure. I think just being interesting to talk about, that's that's one reason it's important. But I think we need to always be paying attention to the context and we need to not allow people to, you know, and in the spirit of Jesus teaching here, perhaps I should say it this way. We, don't, we need to not allow ourselves... <laughs> to simply throw out quotes from the Bible that are not understood uh, well, that we don't understand what Jesus was really saying there. The popular understanding of this verse just falls apart when we inspect it critically. It doesn't align with the spirit of Jesus' teaching, with the broader point of the Sermon on the Mount, and it doesn't align with the rest of the Bible either. And uh, let's we're going to talk about that here in a second. We have to get our Bibles open and read things in their full context. And that means we need to read full books of the Bible, but it also means we need to have a good understanding of the whole teaching of Scripture. Well, in that vein, Jeremy, what does the rest of the Bible say when it talks about judgment and different kinds of judgment? What, what can we learn by accessing the whole counsel of God's Word? Certainly. Let's take a look at uh, quite a few here. Let's start in the Gospels. John chapter 7, verse 24. So we have Jesus here still talking, and he's commanding the Jews, he says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Well, that right there, we already have a winner when it comes to <laughs> contradicting this sort of false misconception of, of judgment. I mean, Jesus literally is saying, make a right judgment. Yeah, it would be absolutely ridiculous to come back to Jesus and be like, hey, Jesus, but you said just a little while ago to not judge. <laughs> right, yes. And it's interesting, you know, in this context, Jesus is is talking to the Jews who aren't yet accepting his claims for Messiahship. And Jesus is inviting them like, look, you need to judge who I am. <laughs> you know, you need to make a critical assessment. And in this case, of course, Jesus would come out in the, in the clear if we make a correct positive assessment. But it's interesting that you do have this direct statement that we should be thinking critically about about the actions and the and the beliefs of other people. Given, you know, all of the various wisdom in scriptures, thinking of Proverbs uh, in particular, you know, we're not supposed to be naive about other people. We need to make some sort of determination as to whether other people mean the best for us. You know, if we have a disagreement with someone, is that disagreement just because we are honestly in disagreement? Or is that person a rabble rouser? Are they trying to hurt me or someone I love? I mean, it's immoral to not make these kinds of judgments about other people. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that we're judging them ultimately and thinking that we play God over them or that we're, we have any kind of a refusal to forgive them. Certainly, uh, that would be not Christian. But it is important to evaluate what other people are doing because our own actions are going to be dependent on you know, what we can reasonably believe about other people. So that aside, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians. Paul here in chapter 5 commands the church to judge when a particular member of the Corinthian congregation is guilty of an offensive sin. A man is actually sleeping with his mother-in-law. Uh, and Paul points out that this is so offensive that, that even pagans don't do that, that this is repulsive and the church should not tolerate it. And so Paul actually says this, 
Quote, Though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here we have a really interesting example of the church, and particularly the leaders of the church, um, needing to evaluate the misconduct of a member of the church. And Paul is very clear, actually, that they're supposed to come down hard on this man. This isn't just supposed to be like, call him in to pray, pray with him or whatever. This is like, cast him out of your fellowship. This is not an acceptable thing for the church to be doing. You must judge that man. And Paul even says, as a matter of fact, I've already pronounced judgment. I already have judged him. Interesting, huh? If, if Jesus meant to never judge in any circumstances, then why is it that Paul says here it's important that we do so and to do so harshly? Also in 1 Corinthians, moving on to the next chapter, chapter 6. Paul actually, this is crazy. This is something I think a lot of Christians don't know. Um, Paul actually teaches that us Christians are going to be the judges of the world and the angels. Um, therefore, and he says, because we're going to judge angels, therefore the church should be able to judge between believers and settle disputes among, among us. So he, here he, uh, here's Paul. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So here, it's almost, <laughs> Paul almost exalts judging others. <laughs> Perhaps it's, you know, the angels, um, but Paul almost exalts it as a privilege of Christians that we're going to get to do this, right? If this wonderful privilege is the church's to enjoy, then seriously, we should be able to settle a dispute between one believer and another believer. You know, you took my TV. No, I didn't take your TV. Okay, the church should be able to handle this. The elders should go and, and try to ascertain what's going on there before uh, we, we go to public law courts. Um, but so, and it's just another interesting, if, if judgment is so bad for Christians to do against other human beings, um, why is it that Paul says that we're even going to judge angels? Therefore, you should be able to judge between believers. All right, let's take a look at some other passages, though, that have some, some more negative things to say about judgment to help temper what we've just talked about. Let's take a look at Romans 2.1. Quoting Paul here. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's really interesting here. Paul seems to be making a very similar argument to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7.1. Jesus is saying that we condemn ourselves if we're guilty of the same thing that we're condemning other people for. That kind of in this sense, the issue really is about hypocritical judgments. Certainly. Well, we also have this passage in Romans um, in chapter 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Kind of the same idea, huh? For sure. And I also think if we bring in the utilization that Paul often makes where, you know, we are, are slaves of righteousness, that we are like under God's leadership, 
I think this kind of emphasizes the point more that, you know, like where are we, you know, passing this ultimate judgment on another believer when we're not the master over them? God is the master over them. Yeah. And I think this highlights something and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about uh, application. But um, it's important not to overcorrect. Now, we've been saying this whole time that Matthew 7, 1 is not an absolute prohibition on judging, but <laughs> we don't want to overcorrect and therefore say that like, oh, we should just go spouting our opinions about everyone left and right. Well, then actually we're guilty of violating Matthew 7, 1. And Paul is helping us kind of keep from overcorrecting, I think. And that's why I think it's good we just mentioned it now after looking at 1 Corinthians and John. Uh, we have to remember the point Jesus is making, hypocritical judgment, absolutely prohibited, and really any kind of judgment where where we are putting ourselves in the position of God over somebody else. The church authorities, you know, the elders of a church deciding that a man needs to repent of his sin, if it's a particularly egregious sin, before he's able to come back into the fellowship, is very different than us random lay people just like deciding that Every person who who has a trouble, uh, struggle with a sin should just be, you know, Christian status revoked. Like, that's obviously not um, what we, we should be about. However, that being said, there's a, a great passage from James here. It doesn't use the word judge, but it's related to what we've been talking about. Um, and it's the last two verses, actually, of the book of James, 519 through 20. It reads, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This verse is a reminder, like, for us Christians who just really want to be passive and never talk about issues in the church when other people maybe are just sinning and openly doing it and nobody's calling it out, uh, you know, we can be afraid to do that, even though it's commanded in Scripture, because we're afraid of being perceived as judgmental. But James commands that we do it. If someone's really wandering from the truth, it's not that they just like said something that was a little off color one time, perhaps, or they were rude to you. It's like, no, they're really starting to abandon the Christian faith. They're really starting to like become callous to sin or callous to unbelief. We're supposed to help bring our brother back to the truth. We should talk to that person. We should be bold and do it and be prepared to be uh, not liked by the brother even for it. It's the right thing to do. James commands it. And that is not the kind of hypocritical judgment uh, that Matthew is talking about. And going in line with my comment just that you shouldn't, you know, get in your brother's face for every little fault that, that doesn't constitute wandering from the truth. Here's another great section in James from chapter 2. Uh, verses 12 and 13, it says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so I think before we conclude our thoughts here and jump into some application, uh, I think it's really important that, that this is the point Jesus is really trying to get at. And I think all of these different texts about judgment that we've looked at are pointing to that sometimes it may be necessary to have to make evaluations of other people's character, and that's just life in a fallen world. But mercy triumphs over judgment, that our disposition to the world around us should not be, oh, everybody just is bad, and I'm great. That's an awful way to think, and that's what Jesus is trying to combat. We're supposed to be merciful. 
judge or judgment will be without mercy to us if we cannot show mercy to other people. So I think that's really the the key point of Matthew 7, 1 as well. But I really like the way James puts it here. So I want to end on that note. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's time for the other meat. <laughs> oh, I just get such a crack out of that. Yeah, so now that we've dug into the what what the verses actually mean and kind of really gotten the the that is the meat of what the text is saying, I think it's time for us to turn to the 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 other meat uh, <laughs> that we can we can get from this text and that is what are the actual applications of this verse, specifically Matthew 7:1 that's telling us to to not judge. Like like how actually can we bring this passage home and apply it to our lives? Sure. And well, we've been talking about kind of all this already, but just to sum it up and and really give like an encouraging final note. Um, first tip I I think is just Let's be quicker to acknowledge sin in ourselves than in others, right? And prayer is a great a great means to this, right? And just being aware and practicing it, um, overlooking the offense of your brother. Just maybe you're aware that something happened, but it just doesn't need to be said. Uh, and this is so common in like friendships and marriages, um, like just to be able to overlook something. Don't always point things out that bother you. Number two, don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> if you yourself are struggling with a particular sin, you're not yet in a position to help others struggling with the same. Even if it is a particularly heinous sin, you probably should find somebody else to help both of you with the problem instead of you trying to give advice to someone else. And the way I like to think about this is like when you're in an airplane and they tell you that you need to put your own oxygen mask on before helping your neighbor... And I know that that kind of sounds different now in the age of coronavirus, <laughs> but <laughs> helping your neighbor put on their mask. Yeah. You're, well, you're not supposed to get within six feet of them, of course. So, <laughs> so are you even allowed to do that anymore? I don't know. Um, but, <laughs> but anyways, so put your own, own mask on before helping your neighbor, right? Don't be a hypocrite. Yeah, and more on that point, I think it's really interesting just after verse uh, verse 1 in chapter 7 that the analogy that Jesus uses of the, the speck and the log, um, I think it's a little bit telling that, you know, both of those are like pieces of wood. And so I, I, I think that there is this comparison that Jesus is making between kind of like categories of sin that like, it, you know, it really is about... Uh, hypocrisy that it's like if you struggle with a particular kind of thing you shouldn't be you know going out of your way to condemn it in other people or even necessarily trying to help other people deal with that aspect of sin as well but you know if if you're you know if it's an issue of different kinds of category of sin i'm not sure that this verse is necessarily like as applicable so particularly if you see a shortcoming in yourself in a particular area, if, you know, in prayer, God is, has been convicting you of uh, like a particular kind of sin, you know, maybe don't be so quick to try to project that out and be condemning it in other people or even, you know, trying to help other people with that particular sin, but to, you know, first deal with it in yourself. For sure. And now let's take a look at tip number three. Always be ready to forgive when your brother or sister sins against you and repents. Jesus says up to 77 times we must uh, forgive. And if our Father in heaven forgave us all our sins, we also must forgive our brothers and sisters. And I mean, Paul was redeemed by Christ after murdering Christians. So therefore, anyone can be. 
So it's really important we be ready to forgive and to get rid of bitterness and envy in our hearts. Bitterness and envy it just kills relationships. It kills churches. Entire churches go down to this root of bitterness that can spring up in people. And don't water that root. Just let it die. Let it die. Like <laughs> You have better things to think about than all of the ways various people have wronged you in your life. That doesn't help you become a better person. That doesn't help you grow. It only feeds this root of bitterness. Certainly. And, you know, connecting it back again to our passage, um, it, it's interesting that Jesus concludes it by, you know, saying that, like, you know, then you will be able to help your brother to, you know, take the speck out of their eye. And so the goal really is about restoration. The goal is seeing both of you without things in your eyes. And that, you know, kind of connecting it to some of our other passages about, uh, you know, like particularly from James, that the goal is to draw people back into right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. And, you know, the foundation of that is that if you if you can't forgive someone, you know, they're like, how can you possibly be reconciled to them? Absolutely. Going on to tip number four, protect the reputation of your neighbor in obedience to the ninth commandment, which is you shall not bear false witness. If there is the if the occasion does arise that you need to, uh, you know, bring back your brother or sister who's wandering from the truth, follow the commands of Jesus and keep the matter between the two of you, <laughs> right? You only need to escalate the issue to the degree necessary for the issue to be resolved. Um, so if a church leader is sinning, then that does need to be publicly rebuked. It even says so. And it's uh, 1st, uh, 2nd Timothy or Titus. I don't remember which one. I'm just thinking of, of this off the top of my head. Um, but you are, you know, supposed to publicly rebuke church leaders who sin. But if it's just your brother or sister, just a layperson like you, and the sin is private, nobody else should know about it. You're, you're actually harming your neighbor to go gossiping about it, even if what they did is really bad, right? It's just don't bear false witness. That doesn't just mean saying things that are untrue. It means having a spirit of wanting to harm the reputation of others. And then lastly, for tip number five, that being said, though, even though you should do so cautiously and biblically, do not be afraid to judge in the sense of calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus. Uh, Jesus commands us to do this. Uh, people might think you're a hypocrite, even if you're not. People might think you're judgmental and think, and they might even accuse you of disobeying the commands of Jesus, right? That's very common these days. People who aren't believers <laughs> even will, I don't know why they care, but I, I've definitely heard many times from people just because I have a different opinion than the common opinion of the world, I've heard like, oh, well, you don't even believe and obey Jesus. And and it's like, okay, but why do you care? And have you even ever read the, read the Bible, you know? <laughs> but, um, but that you will get that. And that is the kind of stance people might take against you if you call people to repentance and faith. But remember, Jesus himself commands us to. That is the part the church must play. So throw off a hypocritical attitude. Don't judge people from a position of being God, and don't go around looking for other people's faults before your own. But when the occasion arises that somebody needs to be called to repentance and faith in Jesus, don't shy away from it. For everybody who does trust Christ for salvation, mercy will indeed triumph over judgment for that person. So it's important that the world know. Certainly. And I think one of the primary mechanisms that God 
uses to give that mercy to people is this calling to repentance and faith inside of the church community. It's believers coming to other believers in love to, uh, you know, call them to repent of their sins and to turn back to Christ. And that that even in and of itself is a mercy that God gives to us. He gives us this mercy of a community that will encourage us and build us up. So Christians, lean into that. Lean into this love for your neighbor, which sometimes requires telling hard truths. And we can add to this point, I think, even (laughs) if you are the one who's being called out for something, don't react offensively. Like, even if you're not sure you agree with the other person, consider what they said. Are they a believer? Do they believe in Jesus? Are they your brother or your sister? You know, are they a, a member in good standing at a local church? Then their opinion is respectable. It's something you should at least consider, right? And so I think maybe we've been talking about kind of the action of the judger for all this, but maybe as our final point, we could just say here, like, you could easily be on the receiving end of this, right? And and probably all of us need to be taken out to the woodshed a little bit by a brother who loves us, you know, and is willing to tell us the truth. And don't despise that. That is God's blessing to you. That person is is as an angel, right? Come to tell you, look, dude, everybody around you sees this, but you don't. You don't see this log. You know? <laughs> so when that happens, receive that uh, criticism. It's time for milk, not solid food. Well, Jeremy, to quote the Apostle Peter, there are some things that Paul says which are very hard to understand. But both Paul and Matthew and all of the rest of the biblical authors also said plenty of things which are, in fact, quite easy to understand. So let's just close this out with a little bit of simple wisdom from the book of Proverbs. Chapter 18, I'm reading from verse 17 here. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. This is a good reminder that we should always be taking a second look at the facts. Whenever we are cross-examining a witness in the stand, cross-examining scripture, or cross-examining our own hearts. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. I mean, alternatively, if you liked what you heard, you have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions that you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That is thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.